As I look at our bulletin and at the top of my notes here, I see first and foremost it says you need to pray. Let's do that. Lord, we do pray. We pray to you, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would, Lord, strengthen us and keep us, and Lord, use us as vessels to proclaim uh, the majesties of Christ. Lord, as we search today your scriptures and we search our hearts, Lord, for understanding and prayer, we pray that you will guide us into all truth, into all understanding, Lord. Correct us where we need to be corrected, Lord, each and every one of us, myself included, Lord, so that we may live a life that is honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to admit that this has been a bit of a peculiar week for me. Uh, in fact, not only peculiar, but this may be the most challenging week that I've had since being in Port St. Lucie. Um, it really shouldn't have been that way. It really shouldn't. Uh, Gerald preached last Sunday, as you know, did a wonderful job, so I had extra time to prepare. And uh, I've been reading for some weeks now on this topic of prayer, and from a diverse number of sources, so I, I should have felt completely prepared for this. But nonetheless, I found myself behind schedule. Uh, I honestly was quite frustrated with some life circumstances that I really could not control. Really nothing I could do. Doesn't that happen so often, but we get frustrated. And as the week progressed, to be honest, I didn't really feel all that qualified to preach about this subject. And in fact, at one point I had that little voice inside of my head telling me, you had better not start preaching on prayer this Sunday. Then I found myself making up all kinds of excuses why I could just postpone starting this series. First I told myself, uh, you know, I haven't finished reading everything I have in my library yet on this. You know, you really should exhaust all the resources that you have on this topic. Prayer is a very broad, a very dynamic subject. You certainly, John, don't want to go up there and preach about prayer one Sunday and then be forced to preach a retraction the next Sunday. In addition to that little voice, um, you might not be aware, but most of you probably are. In a couple more weeks, uh, at the end of this month, actually, I'm going to have completed one year at PSLBC. It's been kind of a, a, a personal goal of mine not to miss a Sunday at church during this first year. Um, if I don't fall off a ladder painting the sanctuary here, and I don't fall ill somehow, uh, I, I hope to achieve that goal. And I don't really know why I set that goal. I want you to know that, that I don't believe that perfect attendance by a pastor being here is uh, an essential goal of a pastor. In fact, from time to time, it's, it's healthy for a pastor to break away, be gone from time to time, uh, visit other places, preach other places. But um, I really like being here most of the time. So um, to attempt to stay on point here, Rita and I are preparing for a vacation. And in June, her and I are going to be gone at least one Sunday, perhaps two. And I told myself, consequently, you know, wouldn't it be good just to delay the start of this topic of prayer? 
Wouldn't it be better just to take that time of vacation and, and relax, do some recreational reading, enjoy myself, and come back refreshed and excited, ready to preach on prayer at that point, after vacation's over? The answer is no. No, it would not. What is it that keeps us from prayer? Why will we delay prayer? Why will we put off the topic of prayer? I know that we, we'd love to blame all the dark spiritual forces in the world, our enemy Satan for distracting us from prayer. I'd surmise that actually the reason that we do is our sinful flesh. This week I allowed myself to be distracted. Well, staring at that blank sheet of paper where my sermon was supposed to be, I finally came to my senses and said, John, you better pray. I need to pray. You need to pray. We need to know what prayer is. Equally, equally we need to know what it is not. Uh, we know, need to know how to pray. Uh, its purpose. We need to learn how to do it. Effective prayer is not automatic. It must be learned. Do you remember the disciples told Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And if our Lord and Savior is going to find us useful as he breaks down the strongholds of the enemies, he builds his kingdom, we're going to have to recommit ourselves to prayer. So I'm convinced and, and convicted I will not delay until after vacation. Today we will begin a three-week series on prayer. And since this introduction has gone on so long, it might end up being a four-week series. But so what? In his darkest er uh, time, in his darkest hour, Christ knelt down and he prayed. Prayer is a believer's personal connection to God. I think most of us would admit we don't do it very well. Part of that, as I said, is due to our sinful flesh. Another big part is due to misinformation. In this series, we will confront both of those. The sinful flesh, of course, is one obstacle, but I think equally harmful is this misconception of what prayer is. Misinformation. The church has allowed itself to be told what prayer is, and not from Scripture most of the time. We're told by Hollywood films as we observe them and watch them, pagan rituals, Eastern mysticism. So often we see that prayers resemble more of a seance, more of a conjuring up a power than it does a personal communion with God. We've come to believe at some points that we're some kind of medium or something. That type of belief surrounds us and it's crept into the church. And honestly, because of all the misunderstanding, the prayer efforts then that we put forth as Christians often become vague, they become tedious, they become ineffective, and we lose heart. In addition to that, our flesh really doesn't want to receive Scripture all that well much of the time, i.e., listen to God. It, it exposes us, it exposes our weaknesses it exposes our sin. So very often, the bulk of a Christian's prayer life ends up being and resulting in uh, corporate prayer assemblies 
as we do today, as we do Wednesday evenings, either at a Sunday service, some other time. A corporate prayer is very good. It's essential. It's commanded in Scripture. But it doesn't substitute for personal, private prayer, as I believe Jesus would say and demonstrate. Some of the greatest spiritual transformation is going to come from you having private communion and prayer with God. Many Christians will never skip a corporate prayer meeting. They'll say, we're going to be there for prayer. We surely aren't going to let anyone think that we aren't people of prayer, right? We're going to be there. But then at home, when no one is watching, it's easy to put it aside. Say, you know what, I'm in a hurry. I'm going to rush now. Do what I need to do. Skip prayer. Then that habit repeats itself another day. Sooner or later, it's been a week without prayer. Sometimes we don't pray at all. So we're going to remedy that. My goal, my primary goal is to achieve through this series that you will become reignited, enlightened by Scripture, and have the confidence to pray just as Jesus often did alone by himself to his Father. So this first week is titled, You Need to Pray. We'll primarily discuss what prayer is, a couple things of what it isn't. Next week, the power of prayer. We're going to learn, where is this power of prayer that everybody talks about? We need to get in on some of that power, right? So we're going to talk about that next week. And finally, the third week, Lord, teach us to pray. What is prayer? How do we do it, Lord? We'll look at the Lord's Prayer, as well as other scriptural examples of what prayer is. I also expect to ruffle some feathers along the way. But that's all right. Every now and again, we need to ruffle some feathers. And you can trust in that. No formalities. Amen. Open your heart to God in prayer. Thank you, Pierre. I'm going to attempt to stay brief today. Um, Probably a little late for that. Uh, But I am confident that this series will be very helpful to each of us. Very valuable. So let's look first at what is prayer. You know, in in books, most often the books that are written about prayer, you'll find this in seminaries, you'll find this in the bookstore. Um, They give a simple definition, a very simple definition, just as it was stated in our text earlier in Philippians chapter 4. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, right? And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, isn't that beautiful? Just let your request be made known to God. Then there's a promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts. That's a horrible definition. The definition falls miserably short of what prayer is. 
It's not that it's inaccurate. It is God's word. It's incomplete. It's dreadfully incomplete. If you remember, back in January, we discussed the theology of a church and what a church looks like. What is Christ's church? And people in America, especially in America, we love to abbreviate things, don't we? Simplify everything down to three-word definitions. We're smart. We want it quick and easy. What is it? Give me three words. Three words or less. If you can't tweet it, I don't want to hear it. Unfortunately, in that situation, we learned uh, that the, uh, the church had been diminished into one line. It says wherever two or three are gathered. You remember? People say all the time, well, it's just wherever two or three are gathered. You might remember that we blew that definition clean out of the water. It isn't just wherever two or three are gathered is my church. Jesus says where two or three are gathered, I'm in your midst. And as you read scripture, Christ's church and function and in purpose is much broader than that. It's bigger, it's more complex, it's more dynamic than a couple of guys just getting together at Starbucks over a mocha latte reading a verse or two. No, we found out that there's public proclamation, there's corporate worship, there's evangelism, there's discipleship, leadership, mutual accountability. When necessary, there's even discipline. I expressed to you at that time that no one verse in Scripture adequately defines the church. You can't do it. So it is with prayer. You can't narrow down prayer to just letting your requests be made known to God. That'd be especially naive. Not only does Scripture have much more to teach about prayer, but that idea of prayer tells us, well, well, prayer is just asking God for stuff. And that's caused people to fall into a, a shallow theology. Christians are in a shallow theology where they've refashioned God into this great benevolent gumball machine in the sky. Who, by the way, he exists to meet our every need. You just make your request known. That's not what God is. He doesn't exist just to grant our every request. Instead, those of us who are Christians, I pray that as everyone here, you and I are here to serve his requests as they're found in Scripture. Prayer is also not just speaking to God. That definition, again, is far too abridged. Just speaking to God? That would describe a one-way discussion. Have you ever been on an airplane and sat next to perhaps a, a young teenage girl who is all excited about life and she just goes on and 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 you never get to say a breath. The whole flight you land and you're like, I didn't get to say anything here. All she did was just talk to me. There was no communication at all. Is that irritating? So do you think God just wants us speaking to him? Is that all? Is it just a one-sided conversation where God is our spectator? Or, does God, as our Heavenly Father, in a relationship with us, ask that you listen to Him also, to know Him, so that you can speak to Him in some kind of intelligent 
communication. That's exactly what he expects in prayer. He wants your prayer to be a response to him. He wants it to be intelligent. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Presumption is evil. A Christian just doesn't make their plans, then tell God what they are and expect God to just bless them. That word there uh, for arrogance that James uses, uh, it was used to describe people who promised what they could not deliver. It was from time to time used for politicians. Make lots of promises, couldn't come through and deliver. So your plans, your desires in life, your prayers must be within the parameter of what God wills or God isn't going to deliver. So an appropriate prayer expects that you will come to know God intimately and know his will. How can you serve him or make your request known to him if you have no idea who he is? You must be able to answer basic questions about God. What his desires are for you? What purpose does he have for you, for me, as we're here in this life? What are his parameters for our behavior that he sets up and that are laid out clearly in Scripture? This, by the way, is an essential component of praying according to God's will. We'll discuss that next week in the power of prayer. How can you pray effectively if you've never asked God what his will is? What do you want? So in prayer, let's take a hypothetical here. Does God's will matter? Does it matter? Or does God just accept and approve any requests that we toss up to him? What if someone were to pray this prayer? Lord, I know that that woman is married, but I think that we have really made a connection. And she says her husband doesn't treat her very well. Lord, he's not nice to her. I think I would be nicer to her, Lord. That's an extreme example. And I use it for a purpose. Is that within God's will? No. Is God going to grant a prayer fashioned in that way? That is so far outside of his will. It's not going to be his will that it's going to happen. That's what you might come to if you have a mistaken conclusion that, well, just let your request be made known to God. That's prayer. Let your request be made known. Then you expect God be obliged to fulfill them. Using one verse like that is what teachers of false doctrines do. They pull one verse out from its context. They give it their own definition. They apply it to their personal agenda. Then they tie it to another verse found somewhere else in the Bible that's detached, isolated from that. And then they tell you, this is what the Bible says. Look, this is what the Bible says. And they'll give you one line out of a chapter. 
And people will accept it because most people are biblically illiterate. They haven't listened to what God says, so they aren't going to question it. Oh, really? That's what God says. You must be right. And you fall into traps and led astray. That's exactly what every cult does. Um, They do not provide, as the Apostle Paul declared, the whole counsel of God on a subject. But you can't know what God expects in prayer without a broader overview of Scripture. It doesn't matter if it's Jehovah Witnesses or the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. They always take one itsy-bitsy piece of Scripture and they form a doctrine around it. Look here. Look what the Bible says. I had one of these show up last Sunday immediately before the service. Um, They were requesting, or he was requesting, it was one young man, he's requesting... 15 minutes to speak to the congregation. He, he had what he wanted to share. It was, was labeled, he labeled it as the new gospel of health. And he flipped open to Isaiah verse, or chapter 38 and showed me the passage on Hezekiah. And he, and he said, look, he received 15 extra years of life by taking fig cakes and putting them on his sores. And he said, you know, God wants us all to live longer. I've got a message for you. I'm not kidding. Now, Gerald was preaching, so I denied him. But in fact, if you go to his website, I did. I'm always interested to find out what's going on out there in Neverland. Uh, You go to his about page, and you'll find this statement. It says, the logo, which is an apple, the logo of Gospel of Health represents a return to the obedience of God's law. A return to true worship as preached in Revelation 14, 6-7. That's just like the Judaizers. They're wanting to return people to the law. And he used that verse to destroy, distort and trick people into following a dietary restriction. He was using that to back up his position. Although we know that Jesus said, Mark 7, all foods are now clean. But such people, they they don't understand God's grace. They still think they're keeping rules, and really they're just trying to find disciples after themselves. But to make no, um, to leave no misunderstanding, Christ is the end of the law. I was with Frank Quintana this week as well with another individual as we were handing out door hangers. And this is becoming very, very prevalent that now Christians need to return back to the law. And this man was very adamant. We need to go back to observing the restrictions on Israel. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. The law is good, we find in 1 Timothy, if you use it lawfully. It's a tutor to show us how incredibly far short of God that we've fallen. Then to lead us to Christ by grace, so we can understand that He is righteous. We're justified by faith in Him. So, But now faith has come. We're no longer under a tutor, tutor, Paul writes, for we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We need to have that straight. But the reason I bring this young man up is because he didn't point to Isaiah 38's prayer of Hezekiah. He didn't point to the prayer. He pointed to a fig cake. In relation to this recovery from a terminal illness that Hezekiah had, This guy concentrated on the fig fig cakes because that was his angle. 
So since I've now led you to the story of Hezekiah, let's just take a moment and examine from Hezekiah's prayer what we can learn about God in that terminal illness from which God spared him. Can we learn anything from Hezekiah's prayer? Do you remember it? Of course we can learn stuff from Hezekiah's prayer. We can learn that sometimes God answers a prayer for healing. We know that sometimes God will answer a prayer for healing. We also know from the book of Job that God does not always answer right away. Right? Then we also know from life experience and two different men in Scripture named Lazarus that sometimes people who fall ill that God really loves die. Sometimes people also die, even though God loves them. And it's a matter of fact that most of the time, terminally ill people die. But listen to what else we can learn by observing Hezekiah's prayer. First, do you remember who it was that prayed in Hezekiah's prayer? That he was healed from, by the way. Who was it that prayed that prayer? It was Hezekiah. Hezekiah offered that prayer. He didn't find it necessary at all to circulate a prayer petition through the land of Judea all over the nation of Israel to sign people up to get enough unction together so that he may be healed. Hezekiah in this situation, terminally ill, had a lone prayer to God. It was he himself. Here's the point. God handled it just fine. God restored him and gave him 15 more years. Next week when we go to consider the power of prayer, we'll see God is where the power originates. But notice here, God absolutely does not need a multitude praying in order to act. God is sovereign. God is powerful. He can respond miraculously if he so chooses at any prayer of one penitent person. Hezekiah prays for himself. Let me ask, do you do that? Do you pray for yourself? Do you pray alone? You know, it's, it's really entirely possible for a person to ask every distant cousin, every far distant cousin, to add them to their prayer lists, to get distributed all across the country, and never ever themselves fall on their knees and pray. In fact, we're tempted to put a whole lot of faith in the length of a prayer list or the circulation of a prayer list. How many people it reaches. Does Scripture ever tell us to rely upon that? It doesn't. To suggest to others, now especially new believers here, that by our behavior, God's ability to act is somehow dependent upon who we've circulated it to. You see where I'm going here? As we demonstrate to new believers, as young believers, as our children, are we demonstrating that somehow we've got to get it right? We've got to get the formula right. We've got to get it to the right people in order for God to act. God doesn't need that to act. God can respond to one person. 
God does respond to one person. You can know when you're on your knees before God that He hears you. He's willing to act if you're within His will. That ought to give you confidence to come to the throne room of God and know that you can lay your heart out to Him. The other approach that we use a lot um, may have wondered how God ever healed anyone uh, prior to the invention of the internet and chain emails. How did he do it? The Apostle Paul prayed for deliverance from his thorn three times. Then he let it rest. He never circulated it amongst other people. What I'm saying is, I'm going to go on before I get into much trouble here. We put too much stock in the length of our prayer lists. You might say, what's the problem? You're kind of splitting hairs there, aren't you, Pastor? What's wrong with our prayer list? There's nothing wrong with our prayer list. I like our prayer list. We can make it clear that by circulating a a prayer list, we can know for the brothers and sisters who are struggling. You think of Bruce Hirchenroder who recently lost his dad. I didn't know his dad. But we prayed for him, we put him on the prayer list, and I know Bruce, and I care about Bruce. So I was able to know that he had this burden, this need, and I prayed for Bruce and for his dad because he was on a prayer list. There are needs for prayer lists. But there's no healing power exclusively represented in the number of people that you're circulating that to. God does just fine on his own. In fact, it's really my opinion, doesn't have to be yours, uh, whether a person is very private and they keep most of their needs to themselves and they take them to the Lord by themselves in prayer and they don't tell anyone else, or if the person is very extroverted and they circulate it to everyone that they know, I don't think either of those is an indicator of a superior spirituality. It's a preference. It's a preference. Some people are very private. Other people are very extroverted. God is glorified in both of those. Simply a preference. So to answer an earlier hypothetical, what might be wrong with the way that we approach prayer lists? It's whether or not we put any faith in it. Consider this question. Do you believe, number one, in a God who is dependent on the number of people praying or the size or the reach of a circular, circular email, telephone calls, whatever, and who is capricious and willing to adapt his response according to the number of people who log on. Or, number two, an almighty creator of the universe named Yahweh Elohim who in his majesty created matter and life and the heavens and the earth, who is so loving and merciful towards his creatures and willing on occasion to grant prayer requests according to his will, who formed man from the dust of the ground, God who contains every molecule, the control of every molecule in his hand, do you believe in number two? Which one of these gods would you be praying to? Why does it matter? Because the first God doesn't exist. The first God does not exist. 
Are your prayers not being answered because of whom you're asking to respond? God formed man from the dust of the ground, fashioned man from dirt. He can handle your clogged arteries. He can do it. And you can know when you pray that he can do it. And then he responds with his decision. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says, I am the Lord God. So to dig myself out of any further trouble, it's always good to cite a beloved source. I was listening to the, the late Adrian Rogers here eh, a little over two months ago. And he had a message on about prayer. I forget exactly which one it was. Um, but he said that he purposefully avoids putting too many people on his prayer list. Now we have to remember, he had tw- I think it was 25,000 people in his church. And he said that people would come all the time, Pastor, will you pray for me? And he said on occasion he'd have to offend them and say, no, you won't go on my prayer list. I don't have enough room on my prayer list for everyone. He said it's not possible for me to pray specifically for everyone in my congregation. We can do that here. But he said, uh, I don't remember his exact verbiage, but it was something in the realm that he said the ones that he prays for are the ones he knows that are close to his heart and the people close enough to where he can actually meet a need. The second thing that I would like you to notice in Hezekiah's prayer is that it is a direct response, a direct response to the revelation of God. Hezekiah had fallen very ill. He was informed by, by the revelation of a, the prophet Isaiah that he was going to die. He was terminal. And that message from God, what he was told by God's word through the prophet, caused him to earnestly pray. Hezekiah determined himself to pray. So already you can see that prayer is not exclusively making our requests known to God, which Hezekiah did. It is also involving a response to what God has revealed, to what God has said. For Hezekiah, his prayer was a response to the word of a prophet. Today, our prayers are a response to what God has revealed to us in the prophets, containing God's word. The word of God contains that faith that is once for all handed down to the saints. Absolutely no one is to add to it or take away from it. So our prayer includes a response to who God is, what he has asked, and what he has revealed, just as it did for Hezekiah. And we can ask for whatever we like, but our attitude must be that of Christ. Nonetheless, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And here's a primary point I'd like you to remember today. The reason that many Christians do not pray And many Christians do not have victory in prayer because they don't have anything to reply to God. They haven't listened to him speak in his word. They don't have anything to say back other than generic prayers. God has spoken to you and me in his word. Are you listening? Are you reading your Bible? If not, it's no surprise that you don't have a fruitful, fruitful prayer life. It's no surprise you might have little understanding of what he has called you to do with your life. 
might not be surprised if you're kind of depressed because you haven't opened a word to hear from God. We need to be people of prayer. And it's not just tossing requests up to God and waiting to see for some period of time whether or not he answers. It's much deeper that, than that as we will find in the next couple weeks as we continue this series. So in review, between now and next Sunday, here is your mission if you should choose to accept. It's threefold. First, read. I would ask that you commit to read one chapter of Scripture a day. One chapter. A few minutes of Scripture. Start in the Gospel of John or an epistle. If you're new to feeding yourself through Scripture, don't go to Ezekiel or Leviticus or something and get drudged down with that. Go to something we can understand. I would actually encourage, if you don't read your Bible much, start in John, the Gospel of John. One chapter a day. And then, when you, after you read that chapter, ask yourself, what is God telling me about himself? What is he showing me about himself in that chapter? What can I know about God and his person in this chapter? And then ask yourself, what would God have me do? How would he expect me to behave in response to that message that I just heard in his word, that one chapter? Ask yourself, how would he have me react to what he has shown me? By doing so, you are answering the question, What is God's will? Then when you understand God's will, you make your requests known to Him. When those requests are made according to His will, and you make them known to Him, and they're according to His will again, according to His will, what do you think the chances are that they're going to be answered? If they're according to His will, you're going to see some prayers answered. You're going to see some things change your life. Second, You need to pray. Tell God, I'm not sure I understand. I realize I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus Christ died for my sins. He saved me from eternal hell. I'm a Christian, Lord. I understand these things. But help me to understand who you are. Help me to serve you, Lord, and bring honor to you. Show me, Lord, what you want me to do with my life. Help me to honor Jesus Christ. And if you read God's word and then pray in response like that to him, I honestly believe in a short few weeks, maybe even in a few days, you're going to be transformed. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be rejuvenated. If you do that, I want to hear back from you. I want to know what God is doing with that. Does he make you feel more comfortable, more confident? Has he used you? in a greater extent, because you've been praying to him? What have you seen God uh, doing with your life? Are you more encouraged? Are you less depressed? Have you seen some marvelous things happen? I want to hear back on what God is speaking to you in his word and what you're replying to him in your prayer. Third, this is equally important to the others. Demonstrate to others how to pray. Demonstrate to others how to pray. Show them how to pray. And and I lament at at how sometimes we'll say to one another, pray for you. Never even ends up making it to the list because you've forgotten about it. 
Ever happen? Happens to me. We try to do well, but it just skips all together. It gets dropped to the bottom of the priority. You just forget about it until maybe you see the person three weeks later or something like that. So we need to demonstrate how to pray. And let's commit to do an experiment here together. Might seem a bit uncomfortable at first, but not for long. Uh, The elders and pastors at my previous church practiced this religiously. They were very, very good about this, and it was very encouraging. When you and I discover or uncover or share a prayer need with someone, let's pray together immediately and place it in the Almighty Uh, the hands of Almighty God. Let's not delay. Let's raise it to the Lord immediately. Could be my need, might be your need, might be someone else's need. Doesn't matter. Take a moment to pray so it doesn't fall off the priority list. Prayers don't have to be long, you know. Look at the one that Jesus gave the apostles that we'll look look at in a couple weeks. Very short prayer. That's, That's the Lord Jesus model for the apostles. We don't have to go on for several minutes. Don't be afraid to share that you want prayer for your, for your ailing mother because oh, I don't want this to go on too long. Just pray. Pray before you depart. Pray before you hang up that phone. I had a situation yesterday where we were doing some trim painting here, and I failed at this. It was fully, fully my attention to pray for a gentleman and his family. Just having some struggles. They've been on the prayer list. And uh, we didn't pray immediately. I didn't stop and say, let's pray immediately. Instead, we kept on painting. By the time we got tired from painting, we were worried about getting the ladders down, stacking the chairs up, and the person needed to go, and everybody wanted to go home, slipped out without any prayer happening. That is my failure. We need to pray together immediately before we forget and leave it in the hands of God. One other part of that in demonstrating prayer, when you have someone that's hospitalized, you talk to that waitress that has a, a problem with her children, don't just tell her, we'll pray for you. We'll forget. We will forget. Pray with them right then and there. Pray with them immediately, and the prayer has been lifted to God. Especially someone hospitalized. They say, I need someone to pray. Will you put me on your prayer list? Tell them, let's pray right now. Show them how to pray. I think we're going to see some wonderful things happen as we recalibrate ourselves to prayer. So let us become a church and a people of prayer, shall we? Let's do it. Lord, we are so thankful that you love us so much, Lord God, that you sent your son to die for us to take away our pains, to take away our anguish, Lord, and have hope in you. Lord, we have so many needs, so many unspoken, so many spoken, Lord, so many that that remain with us for weeks and even years, Lord, as people that we love suffer. Lord, we pray for all of them now, Lord God. We're thankful that you you hear us. We're thankful that you care, Lord God. Help guide us, Lord, to, uh, to being a people of prayer. Help us, Lord, to be people who, who point to the majesty of Christ in our prayer. Lord, help us to become more like Christ. As we leave now, Lord, to uh, enjoy the fellowship luncheon, we pray uh, a gratitude, a prayer of thanks, Lord God, for all that you provided us in abundance. 
as we go now to celebrate our meal. Lord, and uh, we thank you how you provide for us in this wonderful country. Over and over again, Lord. So we we have a wonderful life and we thank you for it, Lord. Bless us now as we leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you're a visitor, you don't quite understand what Christ did on your behalf, I'm going to remain up here today until we depart. I would like you to come and see me or Pastor Weiler talk about Jesus Christ and help you with your understanding. And everybody else, let's eat. Thank you.